You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We continue to hear God's Word this morning in two passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New, before we turn to our text in Philippians chapter 4. We turn first then to Deuteronomy chapter 31. From this passage, we read the verses 1 through 8. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you, and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. We continue our reading in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12. We read the verses 1 through 10. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Finally, we turn to our text 
in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. We will read the remainder of the chapter as well. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Our text ends there. We will continue our reading with the context. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, The crisp morning air and the shortening days are sure signs that summer is on its way out for another year. Now is the time when many plans are being made for another season of labor at home and at school, in church life and in our daily work. It seems a good time to ask ourselves and one another the question, How shall we step into the new season? The forecasts, whether we're speaking politically, economically, environmentally, and otherwise, are not all that rosy, even the most optimistic ones. How are we to view these things as Christians in this present time? Must we keep a stiff upper lip and hold on tight so that we can cope with all the trouble that we are expecting? Is a better approach, perhaps, to seek out programs or books or gurus that will introduce us to new secrets and strategies for leaner times? Well, the citizens of Philippi had both sorts of approaches offered to them. There were the Stoics who believed that the best way to meet life's challenges is to clench your teeth and soldier on with a stiff upper lip, upper lip, come what may. 
That's where our word stoic comes from. And then there were the pagan mystery religions, sometimes called simply the pagan mysteries. At pagan temples, priests and priestesses would invite people to get initiated into the mysteries, the the secrets, the so-called secrets of the pagan gods, goddesses, and their devotees. Well, Paul told the Philippian church what they needed to hear in that time when paganism and atheism were so rampant. In that time of when human pride was so inflated. And he tells us what we so much need to hear in this time in which we live. A time that in many respects is not all that different than it was for the Philippians. Someone wrote a few years back, more prophetically than he probably realized himself, that in the pursuit of self-sufficiency, we have lost our way. We have developed spirits driven forwards to gain more, incapable of slowing, stopping, and remembering that those who sow the wind reap the whirlwind. As a society, it is now plain to see what with all the foreclosures and bailouts, tumbling stock markets and tottering automakers, that as a culture and society, we are reaping what we have sown. And we are reaping the whirlwind. There's no question about it. God calls us then in this time and in this place, as He did the Philippians, to learn the apostolic secret of contentment in Christ. And the first challenge He places before us is to let our good will come to blossom. The first sentence of our text has sometimes been interpreted as a rebuke. Look at what it says there in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. To to some ears it may sound like a rebuke, but it certainly was not that. Especially if you look at the context and if you look at the next sentence there. Paul here is not being like the stern parent who makes you feel guilty for not having called home for such a long time. He's more like the grandparent who is so thrilled that you've stopped by to visit during your trip back home. She knows that you have so much wanted to visit, but did not have the opportunity. That's the sort of thing Paul conveys when he says, indeed you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. In other words, he's saying to the Philippians, I know that you've been wanting to give for a long time, but you just did not have the opportunity. He uses gardening terminology here when he speaks of them renewing their concern. He's happy that their concern, which has been in bud for such a long time, has finally blossomed again, like sunflowers and hydrangeas in the summer. 
What had delayed the summer from coming? What had prevented the Philippians from showing their concern earlier? Before we answer those questions, we need to talk about how they were showing their concern in the first place. Well, the Philippians had sent a large sum of money to relieve Paul and to supply his needs. In fact, this is one of the main reasons that Paul is writing this letter of Philippians to them, to thank them for their generous gift. We're not told exactly what caused the delay, but there are a number of possibilities. Possibly it was the poverty of the Philippians. We read in 2 Corinthians 8, and and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Philippi was in Macedonia. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So it could be that the Philippians simply had had to do some hard saving in order to get this money, this gift, to Paul. It could also be that Paul had declined their offers of help so that his critics would have nothing to say against him. There are numerous passages in the New Testament that indicate this sort of attitude of the Apostle Paul. It could also be that Paul wanted the money to be directed to the needy Christians in Jerusalem. It could, there's another possibility that there was no one able to bring the gift to Paul. There are many other possibilities. We won't explore them all. We're not told exactly why they were delayed. Whatever the situation had been, Paul here expresses his abounding joy, his immense joy for their gift. The source of his joy, what is it? The source of his joy is not the money he has received from them, but their affection which they have shown. It's not as if he's saying, look, look, brothers and sisters, it's, it's the thought that counts. But his thrill lies in their love, concern, and caring support, which the money proves, which shows that their love and concern is in action. Paul had told the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. You know that that is one of the themes of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. And now Paul says, and in this, and this is the way it could be translated, I myself greatly rejoice in the Lord. I myself greatly rejoice in the Lord. Beginning of verse 10. It's Paul's turn to show his joy. This is the same joy that Paul expressed at the beginning of the letter. There he had said, I thank God every time I remember you, Philippians, and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership was often used for business relationships. The Philippians had been in a partnership, the partnership of the Gospel with the Apostle Paul. You see, 
As a good teacher, Paul is doing himself what he commands others to do. He commanded the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always, and here he too is rejoicing greatly in the Lord before them. Paul isn't the sort of teacher who says, do as I say, not as I do. As teachers sometimes say, tongue-in-cheek, No, Paul is the sort of teacher who says, do as I say and as I do. Brothers and sisters, may it be that the same thing can be said of you as Paul could say to the Philippians. Make sure that you diligently show your care, support, and affection for Christ's servants, ministers, and missionaries by providing for the ministry of the gospel, whether that is here in Langley and Greater Vancouver, or in Prince George, Brazil, or China. As a step towards learning the apostolic secret of contentment in Christ, let your good will blossom in the new season. Brothers and sisters, you bring immense joy to the ministers and missionaries, to the elders and the deacons, and to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, most importantly. When you give generous gifts as evidence of your great love for Christ, for the Gospel, and for the servants of the Gospel. In this way, demonstrate that you haven't just thought about Jesus Christ, and His servants, and the spread of the Gospel, as if it is only the thought that counts. Make sure that you let these good thoughts blossom in generous giving. Also make it your aim to get initiated into the mystery of contentment. The second thing we see this afternoon. Now before, this morning, it's still morning, sorry. Now before saying anything about contentment, Paul wants to assure the Philippians that his motives are pure. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, I am not saying this because I am in need. It isn't always easy for Christ's servants to receive gifts and support even when they are clearly in need of them. Pastors and missionaries can tell you that from personal experience. So Paul says, I'm not saying, I'm not saying these things because I am in need. Paul then says that he has learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And he uses a word that was a favorite for the the Stoics, which literally means self-sufficiency. A little more about the Stoics. Stoics were Greek philosophers and their followers who were quite common in those times, who believed that self-sufficiency was the quintessence of all virtues. You have to be able to do it on your own. You have to be able to survive on your own. You just grin and bear it. 
As someone has described it, the attitude of the Stoics was the cultivated attitude of the wise person who had become independent of all things and people, relying on himself alone because of his innate resources or on the lot given to him by the gods. Stoics believed that a person should be able to take care of himself or herself and should also be able, by the power of his or her own will, to resist the force of circumstances. Listen to what the most popular Stoic philosopher Seneca said. Seneca said this, The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. Was Paul then taking a page from Seneca? It may have first seemed that way to the Philippians. Paul was not using the word contentment in the same way, though. Paul was loading this word with new meaning. He was filling this word with Christian content. Scriptural freight. When Paul spoke of contentment, he wasn't commending self-sufficiency. He was commending God-sufficiency. He was talking about the same sort of contentment as we find in Hebrews 13 where Deuteronomy 31 is cited. Deuteronomy 31, which we, which we read. It says there in Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said. And then Deuteronomy is quoted. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, says the Lord. God. Sufficiency. You see, that sort of contentment is very different from the stoic sort. Sometimes we call a person stoic. We don't mean that they have memorized the Greek philosopher Seneca and that they're philosophers or followers of philosophers in some way. What we mean is that they don't show any emotion. A stoic person doesn't show any feeling with their expressions, even under extreme duress. They won't laugh exuberantly and they will never cry in sadness. They are stone-faced and you never know whether they are happy or sad, whether they're having a good day or a bad one. Like the woman, you don't know her, who said that she would not cry at her husband's funeral. That woman could be described as a stoic woman. Christian contentment is different from that. Christian contentment rests in Christ's promise. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, in verse 12, I know 
what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. Literally, Paul says there, if you go back to the original version, Paul says there, literally, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to be exalted. That makes us think back to Philippians 2, doesn't it? Where Paul talks about Jesus Christ being brought low, being humbled, and then being exalted. That's the sort of thing that Paul is talking about here. He's saying, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be exalted. Or I know how to have too little, and I know how to have too much. I know how to be poor, and I know how to be rich. That's what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying here is is not so much that he has experienced both extremes of poverty and riches, although he surely has experienced at least extreme poverty, but that he knows how to deal with both extremes. How does Paul know how to deal with both riches and poverty and remain content? Well, he tells us that he has learned the secret, the mystery of contentment. Look at what he says in the second part of verse 12. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And he uses a word here that was also used in the mystery religions, in the pagan mystery religions, for being initiated into the secrets of the pagan gods and goddesses. You see, it was widely believed in those days that to benefit from a pagan god or goddess, you had to go to a temple and you had to be initiated into the mystery, the secret of that god or goddess. And that would often involve a secret ritual, which in in many cases was sexually perverse, involving a priest or priestess. But here again, Paul is loading this secular word with Christian meaning. He's he's saying to the Philippians, no, don't go in that direction. Don't go in the direction that all the people around you, all the pagans around you are going in. Go this direction. Go the other direction. The direction that God in Christ is leading you. Paul wants these Christians in Philippi to be initiated not into the perverse mystery of some pagan god or goddess who is really no god at all. He wants them to be initiated into the mystery and secret of Jesus Christ. Once again, as Paul does throughout the letter to the Philippians, Paul is offering himself as an example of what it is to be in Christ. Consider that. Christ. What did Christ do? Christ made himself poor to make others rich. Do you remember what Paul says? That famous passage in 2 Corinthians 8 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. This is all about Christ. And how He was brought low and how He was exalted. And notice, brothers and sisters, notice that Paul says in our text that he has learned the secret of being content. Yes, that great apostle, that great apostle, whom the Holy Spirit used to write down so much of the New Testament, that great man of God, he too had to learn the secret of being content. That gives us all some hope too, doesn't it? And he didn't just learn that overnight. The Apostle Paul learned it through suffering. Consider the suffering that Paul describes for us in 2 Corinthians 11. In the passage preceding what we read this morning. I will read that for you. This is what Paul says there in in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and following, what he suffered. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times, Paul says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, Paul says, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled, Paul says, and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness says the Apostle Paul. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus who is to be praised forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Paul learned contentment through suffering. Paul learned obedience through suffering. It is even said, brothers and sisters, it is even said of Christ Jesus Himself that He learned obedience from what He suffered. Consider what it says in Hebrews 5. During the the days of Jesus' life on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. 
And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And here it comes. This is what it says about our Lord Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. There's an important lesson for us here, brothers and sisters. Particularly when it comes to the suffering that we encounter, whether it is in our own lives or in the lives of others. Our loved ones, our fellow church members, our friends, family. You see, as Christians, we aren't in the business of following and giving cheap advice such as, well, just be content. Get used to it. Suck it up. You heard that sort of advice from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or have you given that advice? It's all wrong. That sort of advice comes from the, what someone has called the Aliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar school of counseling, which offered Job cheap advice like this in his suffering. You remember Job's three friends who were, who had that sort of attitude to him in his suffering. How often are we guilty of giving out such advice to those who are going through tough times or, or following such advice? Just, just be content. Suck it up. Brothers and sisters, if it had to be learned by the Apostle Paul, if even our Lord Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering, then we too need to learn it. Contentment needs to be learned and it is something that we have to learn to model to one another in our suffering and also in the comfort that we give to one another in suffering. To be sure, contentment is something that we need to learn not only in times of want, but also in times of plenty. Not only in times of suffering, but also in exhilarating times. This time in which we live is a time in which many are suffering economically. For other people, it is a time of great economic prosperity. We need to bear that in mind, this instruction of the Apostle Paul in mind in this respect too. Who would deny that it's difficult to learn to keep trusting in God and serving Him when things are going sideways, when you're being persecuted, when you're sick, when you're suffering, when you're having financial troubles? But you know, contentment may in fact be a much harder lesson to learn when we're living in times of plenty. That's why Scripture issues extended warnings to the rich. Like Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly 
life. Paul's comment here is then meant to reassure the Philippians that he knows how to handle the generous gift of money that they've entrusted to him. The riches they have entrusted to him, he will put to noble use. We need to learn the apostolic secret of contentment in Christ by letting our goodwill blossom, by getting initiated into the mystery of contentment, and finally by being strong in the Lord. Once again, in the last verse of our text, Paul offers himself as an example for us to follow, as he so often does here in Philippians and elsewhere in his letters. He says there in verse 13, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Listen to how it is literally. What it says there literally. Literally says there, I am strong for everything through Him who makes me strong. doesn't sound like very good English, but it gives you a sense of what Paul is saying here. I am strong for everything through Him who makes me strong. Some manuscripts include the name Christ. Even if Christ isn't mentioned, it's obvious that this is what Paul means. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Now this sentence too, is often misinterpreted and is sometimes even used for manipulative and unholy purposes, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Listen carefully, brothers and sisters. Paul is not saying that nothing is beyond his capabilities. I can do everything. That's not what Paul is saying. Perhaps you've seen the advertising motto of a certain sportswear brand, impossible is nothing. And then you see a a fit, energetic, strong athlete pictured. Well, that didn't come from Paul, at least not in the way Paul intended it here. What Paul means is that he can do all these things through Christ who strengthens him. He has the strength Paul has the strength to learn the secret of contentment both in riches and poverty through Christ who makes him strong. That is true for you too, brothers and sisters, when you believe this, when you put this into practice. Christ is able to give you this sort of contentment in your life in both riches and in poverty, in both suffering and in times of blessing. So let us be careful that we do not use this text to set out on the impossible, both in in reference to ourselves and in reference to others. Sometimes people might use this text to manipulate others into taking upon themselves certain responsibilities or roles. 
This is something to consider, especially at this time of the year when there are many responsibilities that need to be carried out and roles to be filled, volunteers to be found. And sometimes members of the church feel that they need to do everything. That they need to sit on this committee and that committee, that they need to be, if this is going to be done, they have to do it. And, and, or that person who's already busy, well, maybe he or she should do it because they know how. Think about it for a moment. Remember where Paul was when he was, when he wrote this letter. Paul was in prison. Philippians is a prison epistle. And the Philippians might well have asked Paul what he was still doing in prison. Paul, you say you can do everything through him who gives you strength. Why are you still in prison? Did Paul lack faith? My point is this, brothers and sisters. Let's not use this text as cheap advice for those who decline certain tasks or commitments or who are going through a time of great stress. Sometimes it is wise not to accept an appointment or commit to a task or a responsibility. Brothers and sisters, remember that. Sometimes it is wise to take a rest. We should not make commitments hastily or foolishly. Scripture warns against that time and again. Paul is making it absolutely clear with this comment that his contentment is not of the stoic sort. His contentment is not self-sufficiency. His contentment is not, I'm going to do this because I can do it. No, Paul's contentment is, is an entirely different sort. It's one of sufficiency in another. Remember what Paul says elsewhere in 2 Timothy 4. Listen to what he says. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Paul is united to Christ so that when he is weak, he is truly strong. Paul has learned the mystery of rejoicing when he's brought low, of rejoicing even when, when he's, he's totally incapacitated in a prison cell. Paul still rejoices. He has learned the mystery of rejoicing and of being humbled being humble when He's exalted. Brothers and sisters, I appeal to you then, don't go into the new season with a stiff upper lip. And don't go for all the other coping strategies and success programs that the priests and priestesses of our society are holding out to you with their glossy books and enticing DVDs 
and attractive websites. Rather, hold on to Christ Jesus, your Lord. Let your goodwill come to blossom like sunflowers and hydrangeas in summer. For even when you are poor, when you are poor and brought low, you will always have something to give. And with your riches, Christ calls you to be a, a giver rather than a getter. Indeed, it is more blessed to give than to receive, as our Savior Himself said. By faith in Christ, you have also been initiated into the mystery of contentment. Brothers and sisters, knowing Jesus Christ, you know that mystery. The mystery of contentment. In riches and poverty, in suffering and in blessing. Do you think you, that you will not be able to manage because you are too poor? On the other hand, do you think that you will be able to manage better if you are rich? Well, when you are in Christ, you are able to be content, whether rich or poor, whether well-fed or hungry. What is the secret? It's being united to Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is what you are by baptism and by your faith in Him. So do not seek your life, your joy, your well-being outside of Christ. What is the secret? As Paul says earlier in this letter, it is calculating everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. It is considering everything rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. When you learn that secret, brothers and sisters, by faith, then even when you are weak, you will be strong. For God is the strength of your life. Then when you are poor, you will be rich. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.